When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just looking at pictures of high school, I looked different. That's where I was really trying to be somebody else. We would go to the beach all the time. So I was super tanned and I had color contacts. And of course, our hair mm-hmm. was all 80s, but it was lightened. And I specifically remember I wanted to be white. Quite honestly, I wanted to be someone else to fit in with the majority. You would look at the people around you and there wasn't a lot of Asian role models on TV right. or anything you could aspire to. And just looking back recently going, gosh, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But now that I see it, thank God I grew up being Japanese American, being a woman. It's my superpower now. I have my own story. What I'm trying to teach to my kids, I don't feel like, oh, let's all try to be somebody else. I'm Corey Watari, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Corey Watari, a recently published children's book creator. She's the author of I Am Able to Shine, which is a book about a girl who wants to change the world, but sometimes feels invisible. It was illustrated by her husband and Pixar artist, Mike Wu. Corey is a sensei, which means that she's a third-generation Japanese-American, She was born and raised in LA with an experience in animation and fashion industries for companies like Disney, PacSun, and The Gap. And she's also an amazing mom and has really great visions and dreams for her daughters. This was a conversation that I personally had with Corey one-on-one because Raman was off doing something quite amazing. And she and I bonded a lot about what it means to not just be Asian American, but what it means to be raising children in this world today and the cultural things that we'd want to pass down to our kids. She also shares some pretty interesting details about her own experience growing up as a basketball player, which I'm learning is a really big LA thing as my two boys are playing that too. And it was just a really great talk about how she felt a need to create a story and a book and potentially more things that are going to help to inspire her own children to create the kind of world that she wants to see. So I hope you enjoy my one-on-one chat with Corey Watari. Hi, Corey. It's so great to be with you today. Hi, Sharon. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And this is a special one because I've actually never hosted an episode solo. So you're my very first solo guest chat. (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. And I feel like I'm a newbie to this podcast and just 
speaking and interviewing through a podcast in general. So we can sort of take it on together. <laughs> exactly. We'll just, we'll be two girlfriends just chatting as if we've yeah. known each other forever. It'll yeah. be great. So Corey, where are you from? So I am born and raised in Los Angeles, California, Southern California. Grew up in the 80s <laughs> in a very pretty suburban part of LA called Hacienda Heights. And I currently, which I didn't say before, but I currently live in the Bay Area. And I moved up here much later on for work and because mm-hmm. my husband was working up here too. And so yeah. we now live in the Bay Area, but LA is still sort of my home home. When you say I'm going home, yeah, it's funny that I don't mean the home that we have our two kids in and we've lived in for <laughs> years is more the sure. home where my all my family, I have a huge network of family in Los Angeles. So that's sort of where a lot of my heart still lives. So. Yeah. And you're a California girl through and through because you've just stayed on the West Coast this whole time, I huh? I have. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> when you tell people that you're from LA originally, yes. do you ever get asked where you're really from? A lot. <laughs> yeah. I think in general being Asian American or being a minority in general, I think that's a mm-hmm. question that most people I can't imagine saying no to. Yeah. That they'll say, yeah. Well, yeah. Or where, even that, or they'll say, where are your parents from? Or right. what's your nationality? So I definitely get that a lot. And I think even just assumptions that I didn't speak English, right? Mm-hmm. Initially, or yep. that I didn't quite understand what was happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is always, you're sort of taken aback when that happens. How do you answer that when they ask you that? So you say, I'm from LA. And then they say, well, where are you really from, Corey? What's your answer? And I'll say, I'm really from Los Angeles. I'm from California. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll say, if you're talking about my ancestors, then they're Japanese. And that's the other, I think, second part to being a minority. They'll never, they'll look at you puzzled. They'll say, oh, I thought you were blah, 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 blah. Any other Asian nationality under the sun, but Japanese, or you look like this. You're always like, okay, well, maybe you know more about what you think I am than who am I? Right. right. <laughs> totally. Mom and dad are both from Japan and then they came over to the US. Actually, I'm what they call a sansei in Japanese, which is third generation. So my grandparents were immigrants. Wow. We're from Japan. Yeah. So I think it's common with a lot of Japanese Americans here that just post World War II, they were the grandparents that came and unfortunately, oftentimes went to camps. My family actually did go to concentration camps and then settled here and then obviously had my parents and then had me. And it's interesting because I feel like even being third generation, of course, a lot of things are sort of quote watered down per se. There's still that you do know who you are. I think that you're Japanese, you know that there are certain values and family and support and foundation that are there, even at a young age that you'll always have. But yeah, so my grandparents came over, my parents settled into Southern California, Los Angeles. And then there's me and I have two sisters. (laughs) So there's three girls in our family. Wow. What was it like growing up in LA? I live there now. I live here now, I should say. Oh, right, right, right. And it's, I'm a New Yorker. Yes. At heart. And (laughs) Uh I mean, I've only been in California for less than two years, but it's interesting for me raising kids out here because it's very different than how I grew up. What was it like where 
when you were growing up with your two sisters? It's interesting because when we visit too, you're right, it's very different. And I think the time that I grew up in the 80s, being an 80s kid, was very different. But as I had mentioned before, I grew up in a suburb with, there was a little bit of diversity, I would say, but definitely not a ton. And there was a handful of Asian families that you could sort of count on your hand and you knew who they were. Sure. And so, I mean, in general, it was a good childhood, but I think being Asian American, you always, you were sort of always aware of that without leading with that per se, but you do always, you knew that you were different. You knew that you looked different and your family maybe ate different things or did different things. So I think in general, it was really good. I had a lot of different friends, but I think sometimes navigating through being a minority was somewhat challenging. I think looking back now, you can really, as a child, you're not aware of some of the things that are happening or why you're feeling a certain way. But now that I can sort of reflect on that, I was actually just talking to Mike, my husband, the other day about just reflecting about the book and everything and just looking at pictures when I was home at the holidays of myself when I was in high school. And I think back to that point because I looked different in the sense that that's where I really realized that's where I was really trying to be somebody else. It's a weird thing to realize that now we would go to the beach all the time because it was, that was the thing to do. So I was super tanned and I had color contacts that were made my eyes look hazel. Yeah. That was was fashion back then. That was the fashion. And of course our hair Mm -hmm. was all eighties, but it was lightened. And I just, I specifically remember just, I wanted to be white. I mean, quite honestly, I wanted to be someone else to sort of fit in with the majority and not knowing that per se, it wasn't like you sat there consciously saying, I want to be this, but you would look at the people around you and what was happening and knowing that there wasn't a lot of Asian role models on TV or or anything that you could sort of aspire to per se. And so that was the thing that you do. And, And it's, again, I just looking back just recently going, gosh, I didn't realize that's what I was doing then. Sure. But now that I see it, it's actually, it's sad to know and to feel now like, wow, thank God I grew up. I realized when I started working, being Asian American, being Japanese American, being a woman is actually, I kind of say it a lot, but it's my superpower now because it truly makes me who I am today. I have my own story. I have where I came from and what I'm trying to, teach to my kids, but I don't have to feel like, oh, let's all try to be somebody else. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I grew up in the same era that you did. And Uh I think about the cues that we had, right? We were watching Full House on television Uh and the Tanner family all had blonde hair. Yep. And I was reading Teen Bop or YM Magazine. Do you remember those days? Yes. Or was it like Tiger Beat or something? I don't even know. And yeah, Tiger Beat. And all of those beauty tips were catered to white girls, right? So same as you, like I remember, I think the product was called Sun In or something. Oh but my, yes. Is that, yeah? Yes. And I remember trying to highlight my hair with Sun In and now that I actually go to a salon and get my hair colored, I recognize that black hair will never get bleached from, from right. like a bottle spray, right? Like right. It just doesn't Nor work should it, way. right? Nor should it. Especially not when you buy it from Dwayne Reed or CVS. That's just not right. the level. And it's really interesting because I think 
that's all we had. We had access to lip smackers, lip gloss, and the colors that they had were pale pink. We had access to hair colors that were not representative of our actual hair color. So I think it's a little bit of certainly the neighborhood that you grew up in, since you were probably one of the few Asian families, but media at the time as well, just they really weren't catering to diverse audiences in the same way that they are today. I mean, so it's really understandable. I remember my parents sort of running, if there was Trisha Toyota or Connie Chung would be doing the news for us, the local news and be so excited. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, that's interesting, but not exactly understanding what was so interesting about that, but knowing like, okay, that person kind of looks like maybe an auntie of mine or something on TV. But it is interesting. And it's the time that we're in, And I'm glad to see the improvements that are being made. But I think, as we all know, there's still such a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. So when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think what's so silly, but (laughs) so my parents put us in, I guess, going back to growing up in a suburb, not having a ton of Asians around, my parents felt it was really important to still have an Asian or Japanese American connection. So they put us in... Asian basketball leagues. And so I played from when I was five years old till I was in college and even working, I played a little bit here and there on some women's teams just to kind of, I know, which is funny because if you see me, I'm five, three and (laughs) I was about to ask how tall you are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'm definitely on the court. I'm a different, it's so funny. I'm super friendly and, but on the court, I'm like, if anyone messes with my teammates, that's another story. I'm small, but mighty in that way. That's incredible. Incredible. <laughs> and I think because I'm a younger, I'm the youngest sister of three. It's mm-hmm. so funny. I'm definitely the one who, yeah, if we all play, because we all actually played. Yeah. And if we all played together, I'd always say, if anyone knocks over one of my sisters, forget <laughs> it. And they always do that was, yeah, they're like, watch out for Corey. She's the one that will, <laughs> will get you. And you said it was an Asian basketball league? It was, yeah. Oh, cool. Specifically Japanese American. It's actually pretty big in LA that they have these leagues. Ours was called Seyo, S-E-Y-O. And I think now, my girls don't play now since we're up here, but they sort of, they open it up. It's not just you have to be Japanese American, but before they're trying to encourage, obviously you could be mixed or whatnot. But now I think it's just sort of not whoever wants to play, but in general, it's more open. But what's so interesting about it when I was just doing research a while ago for other things, I didn't actually know. But the reason that these leagues exist is that, again, going back to the war, Asians or specifically Japanese Americans weren't allowed to play in regular leagues. So they created their own leagues to play in. Interesting. And they lasted. Yeah. Which I thought was sort of an interesting thing. And that it lasted obviously for years. And but for me, it was an escape from the real world of not having a lot of people that look like you, that you could sort of hang out with and talk to and have so much in common with. So it's so funny that back then, I remember in the beginning when they drag us to games or practices, I would be like, oh, here we go. But it's so funny as you get older, of course, it became fun and you have a camaraderie with the other girls and the parents. And then it became something more than just playing basketball. And I understand so much more now from being a parent why of course. my parents yeah. sort of 
I guess it's instead of the Chinese or Japanese school situation. It, yeah. it, for me, it was like, okay, you're going to play basketball, yeah. you know? <laughs> it's a community. Yeah, it's a community yes. and it's an activity and it's friendships. And so you started to talk about it. So were you about to say that you wanted to be a professional basketball player? <laughs> I think in my like heart of hearts, <laughs> which is kind of funny to hear, or maybe a coach. But I think in my real, real big, big dreams back then when I was little, it yeah. was, I loved to sing and dance just all over the place. So that was one thing I think if you ask any of my family, especially my sisters, they'd be like, could you stop singing all the time? <laughs> and back then it yeah. wasn't like you could stream whatever songs it would be, right? whatever my right. parents were playing, these 70s. There was all these songs back then that I was like, oh my gosh, it's so funny. I still remember the words from them. (laughs) Who was your favorite singer back then? It sounds funny. I think it was like Linda Ronstadt or something because again, it was that. (laughs) I know. I know, right? (laughs) I thought you were going to say Debbie Gibson or someone. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm thinking when I was real little and didn't have a choice. But yeah, no, you're right. It was probably Debbie Gibson or... So you were in Madonna, right? (laughs) Yeah, we all loved Madonna. I feel I still love her. Yes. You wanted to be a professional singer when you were young. Yeah, I think if in my heart of hearts, and I think being the third child, I think I always struggled with that too. Okay, what is it that you really want to do when you grow up? Right. How people would ask you that question, you, oh no, you know, I'm going to get judged. And I think you can probably attest to this, like your parents, of course, them saying, oh, you're not going to be a singer. You're not going right. to be an artist. You have to, yeah. you're going to be a doctor. You're going to go, you got to yeah. go to school. You're going to be a lawyer. Even yeah. again, being third generation, that those types of things still stick with Asian parents. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened? So mom and dad wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer, like every Asian mom and dad, mine too. We might as well have just grown up in the same house together, sharing sun in highlighters with each other. And where did your path take you? So once I got to college, I think I always actually had a love with working with kids and just anything to do with children. Mm -hmm. So initially I thought, oh, okay, when I go to school after I'm going to graduate and, you know, maybe become a teacher. I did some internships with like child psychology. So I thought maybe a a psychologist, but when I actually ended up going out in the world and just getting some work experience, I interned and I sort of just fell into human resources, but I loved the fact of like helping people. That was sort of the draw at the time. And I was lucky enough to apply and get a job at Disney Animation Studios in Burbank. That's fun. And it sort of tied back to the whole, I worked in human resources, but sort of that connection through film and animation to children again, it sounds weird, but just having that, that felt like home. And I was lucky enough again to meet my husband now, Mike Wu, who was an artist at the time. And yeah, so for me, Disney was obviously such a good well, you guys, You guys experience. met at work? We you did, which is, I know, a little and taboo. So, and you're the HR person? That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, at the time, this is what's so funny. At the time, I was in the artistic recruitment department. So everyone... That later on, you know, once we got together, everyone said, oh, you must have recruited him. Like, oh, I see. I said, no. I said, actually, (laughs) he was already at work. We met through another process. But what's kind of funny, again, going back to being Asian is that at Disney at the time when we worked there, it was late 90s to early 2000s. Again, not a lot of minorities 
in animation, actually mostly men, mostly white men, <laughs> and very few minorities. And so it was funny is in HR, there was a lot of more women. So all different. I have Hispanic friends and white friends, and there was a few Asians. And so it was funny. They would You would hear rumblings of, oh, we should set you up with so-and-so artists. And I'd look and they'd be Asian. You know what I mean? And like, oh, we took it with, and it was, they were trying to kind of get us together, all the people that sort of went together right. together because there wasn't that many. So it almost felt like elementary or high school again in that sense. But we sort of met organically. But what's sort of funny about the way Mike and I met was that he was applying for a promotion through a job that I happened to be even though I was in recruitment, he was already working there, but I was happened to be helping to kind of get this promotion. They do like a review of artists' work to see if they're ready to move on. And I kind of had to help facilitate it. So we kind of met through that because he had to ask questions about how to do something and where to submit things. And I was sort of the point person. So we met that way. And I knew, of course, he was Chinese and he knew I was Japanese from our names. But when we spoke, I remember my impression of him initially was that, oh, this sounds terrible on my side. I was like, I wonder if he speaks English. I don't know why I thought that, but I I really speaks English or speaks English well. And he actually, which is so we had the reverse because when he met me, he said, oh my gosh, her English is so good. She must be adopted. And I don't know why (laughs) he thought I was adopted. And I don't know why I thought he didn't speak English. And so later on when we had this whole, we were both like, wow, we were, (laughs) we really had the really wrong impression of each other, which is so ironic. (laughs) But That is really ironic. (laughs) Yeah. And later on, we just ended up connecting that way. And then What really kind of brought us together was another sort of funny story, but there was like a Christmas party. And again, him being with his artist friends, me being with my HR friends, there was a party where they had, they used to have the disposable camera thing was sort of a fun. Oh yeah. You take pictures Mm -hmm. at the wedding kind of a thing and then they get it later. Well, they took pictures at the Christmas party. We all had our cameras and later on we were getting our film developed and I'm thinking, who are all these people on my on my camera and it was all his friends and so someone had my so we ended up switching cameras and yeah anyway that's that's such a cute love story I feel like that is a screenplay in the making (laughs) I know it's sort of a funny way that we all yeah but (laughs) that's great so at this point you and Mike have met you're both working at Disney Everybody knows you're dating, I'm assuming. Like it's open. After a while, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what was your experience being a woman working at Disney? Because it's your story just now of just seeing each other's names and making assumptions makes me assume that you guys were probably part of a pretty small minority in a big company like that too, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think obviously there was others, but I think in animation in general, It's changing so much now, which is so great with so many more diverse storytellers and a lot more women. And I think that coming to the forefront, I mean, just even with Turning Red, right, from Pixar, right, which Mike worked on and they're so proud of that. Yeah. But I'd say too, it was challenging navigate. And I think in general, at every workplace that I've worked at Pacific Sun, where I worked at, at the corporate gap up here in the Bay Area. I think it's one of those things with A, being a woman and then being an Asian American woman. I'm not saying it's harder than any other race, but I definitely felt my bit of challenges 
in those corporate environments of sometimes feeling like I wasn't heard or again, invisibility, right? Assumptions on age even sometimes. I would hear that sometimes from directors that maybe didn't know me as well. And then when I present or something later, they'd say, oh, I thought you were younger than, it sounds weird, but I would hear that. And I'm like, wow, did someone actually just say that? Yeah, I've gotten that too. I think that it's almost like a very uniquely Asian thing because many of us appear younger than our age, quote unquote, but it is an interesting, when I've gotten it, it's always meant as a compliment, right? It's always right meant to be, you're so professional or you're so mature or you're so, I don't know, whatever, but it comes across as, I thought you were something because of the way you looked and you're not actually, you surprised me because I had a certain impression of you. That's right. And it is always an interesting moment. And how have you responded? What's your reaction in moments like that? Well, the time that I've heard it was sort of, I don't think I was supposed to hear it. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Per se, it was sort of under one's breath and kind of when going out the door type of a thing. So I remember just sort of being in shock about it. I think, and just like you said, you kind of know that these things happen or maybe they're said, but to actually hear it being said, I think I was just a little bit offended by it. And again, that was someone that was my senior. So there was really nothing I could say about it per se at that time, but it's something I'll never forget (laughs) for sure. Was it said after a meeting or something? What was Mm -hmm. the context? Yeah, it was said after a meeting. And I feel like after that point, I definitely felt different about that person and watched their interactions with other women in that way. And it's just, again, something that always stuck with me. And I felt like I was always trying to prove myself, prove myself to be, no, I am stronger. No, I am outspoken when I need to be. I am strong. And I don't know if that's just a woman thing sometimes, or if it's an Asian American thing, or I don't know if it's both. (laughs) Yeah. As you went further into your career and maybe experienced this a couple more times, did you find ways to respond to it in a different way or to cope with it? Or I guess my real question is, I know for me, as I've gotten older for real, Uh (laughs) yes, (laughs) and I've got over 20 years of experience in the business, a lot of the insecurities that I felt early in my career, because I just wasn't sure about a lot of things, right? I wasn't sure about my own skill set. I wasn't sure about my role in a certain workplace. I wasn't sure about dynamics. Those things have kind of fallen away a little bit because it's like, I've done this enough times. It's kind of like riding a bike. You sort of, you get into very similar situations. And so therefore my responses to things like that have also come with that age and that wisdom. I'm just wondering if you've, how you've navigated that too, now that you're, we're about the same age. So you two are probably 20 years into your career. Well, I think now... Well, I left the corporate world a while ago, but I think now, like you said, having experience, especially being a mom too, I think there, again, you kind of have that mommy bear that kind of comes out (laughs) when it needs to and that protective mechanism, I guess, if you will. And I think now I would be a lot more prepared to sit down with that person and sort of speak to them about why that wasn't appropriate and why that's actually not true. And I think that what's hard about that is I think that stereotype of Asian Americans or women, I think that is something that we have to kind of fight back on because it's still out there. And I think, again, things are changing 
for the good with the younger generation. And I see it in my kids, which is so great and encouraging to see that already there are things that we may have experienced that hopefully they won't have to, or it'll be less of. But like you said, I think now just being able to kind of push back on that, or if we run into something that's maybe similar out there, at least I can speak back to that. or have be able to just respectfully tell somebody whatever the situation is, but obviously we are here or we do speak English or whatever it is that might come up or it is her turn next. I think that's a big thing with, I see with my kids where actually it's so, we just went to an egg hunt festival on the weekend. And that was something that did come up with one of my kids, my oldest. And she was saying, yeah, they kept asking me if I could give them one of my eggs that I had found and everyone had gotten a certain amount because it ended up being a lot more busy than they had liked. So they didn't have enough for everyone. So they wanted to make sure, oh, especially the older kids, because there was like an age range, right? That they would share and make sure everyone got one. But she, she said, I had a few kids come up to me and asked me, can I have that? I would like it. And I said, oh, what did you say? Because my daughters were really sweet. She's really friendly, really sweet. She's not too How old shy is she? either. She is almost nine. Okay. And I said, what did you say? I was sort of like you wondering how she's going to react. And she said, no, I found it. It's mine. She only had two. They're supposed to get up to six. And she said, I only have one other egg. And this girl had more. And she said, no, but she kept asking me. She said, no, but I want your egg. I'd like it. And she said, no, I think I'm going to keep it. That's okay. I'm going to keep it. And I said, oh, I was actually really surprised. I said, whoa, that's usually like a mommy situation where I might've had to come in and just kind of say, I'm sorry. Here's right. the situation. And so I was actually really proud of her. Like, okay, that's good. Hopefully some of these situations where she's seen Mike or I, I'm hoping that that rubs off on her. And plus, again, what they're teaching them now in school, these things that we never, all this social emotional learning and things that we didn't get, I think is rubbing off, which is encouraging to see. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right that becoming a mother, it gives you a certain type of fortitude that maybe didn't exist before because you're put in a position of protector and nurturer and many other things. But I've been hearing the phrase a lot, giving ourselves permission to blah, blah, blah. And it's really interesting because when I hear that, I think, oh, that's a lovely concept, right? Yes, we should give ourselves permission to be angry. We should give ourselves permission to take a day off for self-care. We should give ourselves permission to forgive ourselves. But then I stop myself and I think, are men ever told that? <laughs> that is like a very uniquely message that only uh, women tell right. each other, right? right? I would never hear my husband say to his brother, hey, Rob, you should give yourself permission to blah, blah, <laughs> right. blah. They don't even think like that. It's, yeah. And they don't have like the inherent- mom guilt. I don't ever really hear right. dad guilt. <laughs> right, right. They don't have the mom guilt, but it's also they approach it as if it is just expected. And I guess that's what's unique about my motherhood experience, at least like as you and I are talking, because I don't have daughters, right? I have two sons. Ah, that's right. And so I see as someone who is their protector and their nurturer and all those things, but I see how they navigate the world as boys. And I see how the world responds to them or reacts to them, right? And it starts so young. And I guess that's what I'm getting to. It starts at such a young age of how we condition our children to carry themselves, but also how we condition them to expect the world to react to them. them. Uh Yeah. It's true. Yeah. So true. And so you said that kind of 
switch for you when you became a mom? What exactly, how would you pinpoint that? What was the thing that kind of flipped the switch and what was that change for you? Well, I think it's before you have kids, it's so much, basically, you're always thinking of yourself, really. It's a lot of I, 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 me, me, me. And then the moment you become a parent, I mean, it just becomes about them, really. Mm -hmm. And making sure that they're safe and that they're loved and that the experience in the world that they have is as positive as can be. But I think it's hard. I find myself especially now as our oldest is getting older, trying to step back to a little bit and making sure that they're, especially since I have two girls, that they're being prepared also for real things that could happen. But it's really hard. Like like I really, my husband has to kind of remind me. And I think, again, him being from New York and me being from the suburbs, like I'm so used to a bubble. And he's so used to, well, I used to have to take the subway by myself, you know, like, and and that way I think we have a good balance, but I'll have to kind of do the, okay, okay, you have to kind of sit back and let them make their mistakes and have these struggles, which it's so funny because I think back to my childhood and obviously we did have them, but I think in some ways my parents were just so busy and there was three of us and they just kind of had to let us, (laughs) some of it was just necessity of just letting us figure things out. Figure it out, sure. Now parenting is so different with so many resources that we have and we're so involved and and just again, the way that they're being taught is so mm-hmm. different, but I still feel like I need to hold back to be able to let them experience what they need to and kind of get through some of those challenges, even at a young age. But it's been tough, I have to say, <laughs> for me, you know, letting go. And I know it's, it's probably so talent. different for you with boys. Yeah. I always yeah. was fascinated about that because both, I have two sisters and they both, the pattern was they had girls first, they had boys second, and they kept saying, okay, Corey, you have a girl for it. You're going to have a boy. And I had another girl. So I was expecting a boy, even though we did find out the sex of the baby, but I was thinking, oh, before that, I kept thinking, oh gosh, this is going to be a boy. I wonder, we were so excited to see how's this going to be. And so I always, yeah, I was always fascinated. Like, how is that? Especially because you have two boys. So right. right. Yeah, I'm way outnumbered. Even our dog is a boy. There are no, I'm the only female in our house. <laughs> oh, see, that's so, because Mike is the opposite. He's like that. We don't have pets yet, but he's obviously outnumbered right. with us three girls and him being, but luckily for me, Mike has a sister. And so yeah. and growing up in New York, he was like, oh, I'm used to all, all of that. All the girl stuff. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I got lucky in that way. He's an enlightened man. That's great. Yes. <laughs> Do you see any parallels between how your girls are growing up also in California to your childhood, or would you say it's actually quite different? I think one of the things that I think for me, especially that was always important to me is just being close to family, even though we're not super far, but most of them are in LA obviously. And we're up here in the Bay and we're actually in a silo because we're the only family that's up here in the Bay area. So we have to usually go down to see everybody. But I think the Biggest thing is, yeah, keeping them connected with family and showing them sort of through family and that support that how, just how strong you are with that and knowing who you are and having that love and support behind you, I think is one of the things I always had with my parents and my grandparents and again, my aunties and everyone that's down there. But I think that's the commonality I would say. But I think the difference is again, just in the day and age of what the opportunities, the education and things that they have now versus what I had when I was younger, I think is different. And the way they're really trying to teach kids now is really different. So 
I'm grateful for that, that my girls are growing up in a time that's a lot more inclusive and there's a lot more education just around race. Mm -hmm. I will admit though, I do still find it disappointing in general that they don't have that as much education about Asian Americans in this country. And I know it's up to us as parents to kind of fill in the gaps of those pieces. And I hear it from other Asian American parents that that's sort of a missing link. And I remember that being a missing link when I was young too. And you mean in terms of curriculum in schools and and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Or just even the mentioning of things doesn't have to be written into the curriculum, but I think teachers introducing certain things or ideas. I mean, I do say it's great. Our school now, they recognize a lot of the holidays and they'll talk about them. Right. But beyond that, yeah, I think yeah. there's a big focus on certain things that is, it's great. And I'm glad they do that in the education. But I feel like that's something that, that would help all of us in general, not just Asian American communities, but to educate everyone on those types of things so that it's not so foreign. Right. Sure. And especially yeah. with things, not to bring it here, but as we know, with a lot of these hate crimes happening. So it's just that whole piece. I feel like the education piece would help in general. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was really the premise of why Remen and I even started this show. It was, it's really the notion that the more people can learn about something other than what's familiar to them, the more empathy we can have overall in the world. And yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel like if in schools we heard more about the Japanese internment camps, for example, right? If we learned more about the history behind who was really working on the Transcontinental Railroad, what are their stories? How did Asian Americans help to build this country that we live in today? Oh, that's so true. We just might be in a different place than we are right now. And I think, I believe that goes for not just Asians, right? That's every, every race, every culture, everyone that's had any impact on what this country has become because we're a young nation, but we have a history. We've been around for several hundred years now, and there's a lot that isn't represented and it still feels, and the longer we take to share those stories and represent other perspectives, the longer it's going to still feel like we're just still all immigrants in this country. And for, again, we keep saying like, you got to make the foreign familiar. That's right. one of right. the sayings that Mike's really good friend always says, because we're like, it's true. Because people then, they fear things or they have misconceptions of things that they don't know about. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's making the foreign familiar so that it's just not foreign. It just is what it is. Right. Right. And it was just, like you said, whether it's this part of the curriculum or not. And I know it's hard to think that the educational system can touch on every single race and every single experience, yeah. but I think they just need to do, if anything, a better job of that right. if they can. And of course, with parents filling in what they can with their own experience, right? I feel like that's something that for my kids nowadays, I'm hoping that will continue to improve that and that will just make things a little bit, we're getting closer to <laughs> the understanding of different cultures and races as we go. So exactly, exactly. I think a big part of that is some of the work that you and Mike are doing. So going back to you and your husband, how did you guys decide to make, write and illustrate this book? 
how did all that start? So I'm able to shine was a seed of an idea years ago that I at the time didn't even know was going to be a book per se. There's a lot of written thoughts and hopes for future, really. But during the pandemic is actually when I think a lot of us had time to really reflect and spend time talking about dreams or things that we wanted to do. And that's for me, luckily enough, I'm married to the person that <laughs> he's done books before. So I was able to kind of bring that story to life during that time, even though it was like sort of a seed of an idea a long time before that. And it's just so interesting. We were talking to somebody else about this, that the idea was in work before a lot of the Asian hate crimes were coming out and things like that, even though it's always been there, but it was sort of really coming to a point during the pandemic and we were right in the midst of writing it. And it was so just sort of ironic and telling and mind blowing that, wow, I felt like a calling almost. I have to do this book. It would almost make me teary to think about the future for my kids and for children to think that all this negativity is what the things are going to be. And I just thought, no, there's so much more light and positivity out there. So the pandemic is sort of the time frame where we had, I think, the space and the time to really focus on working on the book. And I'm trying to think the actual inspiration is really sort of what we talked about becoming a mom and having my girls. And then when my oldest was starting to go to school, we started looking for picture books for her. And my husband being Chinese American and me being Japanese American, I thought, oh, let's look for books that sort of speak to our background so we can kind of fill that piece in and educate her. And I couldn't find any. We would look at stores and we'd look online. And that also was sort of an aha moment for me years before that to say, I want to do something like this that is for my girls, that they can see themselves in a book that's for them and hopefully inspire them. So it's sort of a twofold that kind of all came together. But the real inspiration was definitely my girls and just wanting them to have representation. Yeah. It's a beautifully illustrated book. And of course, because your husband is a professional. <laughs> <laughs> He's done very, very professional, award-winning Oscar level work out there. And so you got you probably got the best illustrator that you could. Right. Right, right in your house. And I think what I really enjoyed about the story of Keiko is that at the beginning anyway, she's in situations that reflect a lot of what you were just talking about. So I see now that we've chatted, Corey, I see so much of you in this story. And I'm wondering if some of these situations are things that your own daughters had come home to you with to ask advice about, or if there are elements of this where as a parent, I can see how this is a really nice tool for a dialogue to open that up because I think kids aren't always forthcoming with what happens. And especially because I have two boys, I'm being so stereotypical, but literally it's, I think about them all day long. No, that's not exactly true, but they're on my mind a lot uh -huh. during the day and they come home from school and I'm so excited to hear about everything. I want to hear about what they had for lunch and what they played at recess I'm and same. all the things that I'm like, how was school? Right. And they say, fine. They say nothing. I know. <laughs> they, me crazy. Just say, they just say fine. And I'm like, wait, you're robbing me of this experience. I, I know. Yeah. 
I hear you. My daughter says, I mean, so I can start unpeeling the layers as I ask questions sometimes, but it's true. It is hard to get that out of them. But you're right. I mean, the book, they're not exact moments. Some of them, of course, Keiko playing basketball is homage to me <laughs> playing. Right. But they are definite either scenarios or feelings or situations that I've experienced or my daughters have experienced incorporated into the book. But I think the biggest thing for me was just to make sure that I am imparting positivity and the words, as you know, it's simply written, but the words, the mantras that we sort of have in there of being kind and to love and to inspire were really important to us in the sense that I wanted those to kind of linger and to kind of marinate with the reader so that they were things that the child could kind of keep with them, so to speak. Because I felt like, again, not meaning to, but again, during the time of the pandemic and in general, there was just so much negativity going around. Sure. Obviously, kids feel that. They feel the stress. They feel the negativity, even if you don't say it or have them watch news or (laughs) whatever it is, but they can feel that from us. And that was important to me to have those sort of powerful words to sort of have them keep that with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been the last two years have really been so heavy when even it's kind of crazy because this morning I was just on a call with a bunch of people from all over. We're based in different places and we were reflecting upon the news, the events right now in Ukraine. And just yesterday there was a shooting on the subway in New York. It's one of those moments where it feels like as soon as something gets a little bit better, it felt a little bit maybe COVID was going to be under control for like a brief For like a second. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a glimmer of a day a few months ago. And then all of a sudden, everything just kind of, it was almost like it came back tenfold. So I think any glimmer of light that we can put out there is so important now. And it really is about shining that love and encouraging that and nurturing that as much as we can. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, that we, again, just, it was a strange coincidence at the time, but we were writing this before Kamala Harris was Mm. even elected as vice president. And I always call this like a spoiler because (laughs) we didn't, we were trying to kind of keep that part hidden in the book, but before anyone actually read the book, but of Keiko becoming president was something that was really important that Mike and I felt we wanted to put that in there in the sense that our agent, I think, was the one who first had said, you can't be it if you don't see it. And not seeing any minorities, women, Asian American women, being president, being vice president at the time, it was something that I felt was important to show in general. (laughs) And so it was so sort of exciting when Kamala Harris did get elected and we watched the inauguration on TV with our girls and we were so excited. And I remember my daughter's face being like, yeah, I'm so excited too. But her kind of looking at us like, wow, okay. (laughs) Not completely (laughs) understanding. Like this is a really, really big deal. But that was another important piece of the book that I really wanted to just showcase and have it in print. Mm -hmm. That that mm-hmm. was something that should not be unusual, that should not be unattainable. So and I'm glad it is. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the power of the work that we're doing as parents, right? Or as content creators or however we want to define ourselves. But 
our kids will never truly understand the impact of these things because they're just going to take it for granted. All of our kids now know that there's been a female VP VP, in the office. My kids, when President Obama was in office, we were at a children's museum. It was ironic. It was on Martin Luther King Jr. Day because they didn't have school that day. So I took them to a children's museum and there was a setup of the Oval Office, right? So it was like a kid-sized desk and a kid-sized flags and phones and whatever. And my two little boys just kind of ran up into the desk and started pretending they worked in the Oval Office. My kids are half Asian and half Black. So the idea of a Black president when you and I were growing up was for it. No way. We could imagine that it'd be possible, maybe, but it hadn't happened yet. And my two little boys doing that was because that was the president, right? Of course, Obama's president, there would be nothing stopping, literally nothing stopped them from doing that. It probably wasn't even a conscious thing, but it was this amazing moment where I looked at that. I I snapped a picture of it and I was like, of all the days of the year on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and all the things that they could play with, this is what they gravitated towards. And I was like, wow, that's the power of changing the face of who we see in these positions. That's the power of representation which is what you're doing with this book, which is such a fantastic, it's a fantastic thing. Thank you. What would you say your daughters have learned from you? If I were to ask them that question, what do you think their answer would be? Oh boy. (laughs) I think it honestly depends on what they're into right now, which they're into. I I hate to say they're into Wally right now. So they would probably Uh say, mommy cleans a lot or something like (laughs) something silly (laughs) like that. But I would hope that they would say to be respectful of other people and their ideas to be kind and to sort of sit back and give someone a chance sometimes, because I feel like that for more of my older daughter, cause my younger daughter is only in preschool. So there's not as much of that classroom dynamics is more like, Oh, we played right. and we did this or, but my older daughter has been, even though thank God she's not a teenager yet, but she is navigating a lot about relationships and just, like you said, with your boys, it's so interesting to just kind of sit back and watch how she's been navigating through situations, sometimes with the help of the teachers, which I find really great that they are involved. And then sometimes for me to sit back too and just and take that back seat and help her, but not direct her per se in certain situations, I'll tell her what I might do or say, but Ultimately, I'll say it's up to you. But I think it's one of the challenges of being a parent, I think, is there's not a good balance sometimes of knowing how much to get involved and how much to let them go. You know what I mean? And it's a funny thing now that I, again, think of my parents and like, wow, whether it was meant to or not, they did such a good job of that because I didn't feel sort of held back per se. And I think the insecurities or things that I had growing up were things that were not created on my own, obviously, but just things I was trying to overcome. The good thing about with my girls, I don't see that as much. And I don't know if that will come out later again, joining the teenage years, but I don't know if that will come up or the insecurity. Right. I'm hoping whether it's through the book or through the home life or the, the situations where they're with us, that they'll be able to, I guess, even just the small Easter egg hunt situation where you can stand right. for yourself and know who you are and be proud. Things that, again, I think I had to learn. Like you said, you just kind of, as you, you get older and working for a while or whatever it is that you've done in the in your life, to feel grounded and that you deserve respect. 
And I think, yeah, that's one of the things with everything going on, I think with the Asian hate that's happening, I think for me, that's sort of, we've touched on it a little bit with our daughter, but it's hard. I don't want to scare her or I don't want her to feel, because she's very quick to say, well, that's not right. Or, oh, that, why do people do? And so it's sort of a delicate dance, so to speak. But it's funny that we use my book sometimes to kind of teach about these things with the girls of where you come from and to be proud and that everyone does belong here and things that sort of sound cheesy or, but I want her to know that that's true. Yeah, absolutely. If we were to turn back time to when you were a little girl in LA, being the youngest of three in a not so diverse neighborhood and playing basketball (laughs) (laughs) with the Japanese American league, what's a piece of advice you would give to yourself? Oh gosh. Gosh, I think going back to what we've spoken about is just not being afraid to be yourself, I think, and being proud. And I think easier said than done now, but at the time, again, even though I didn't feel like an insecure person per se when I was out in the world, but just looking back, I think deep down, I mean, I think all of us obviously have feelings of insecurity, at least here and there, realistically, right? But if I could really go back and say that, to myself and actually do that. I think that's one of the things I would definitely say, knowing what I know now and knowing that our ethnicity and where we come from and what we know of our culture is sort of what makes us unique and what makes you powerful. And I'm glad that I can say that now, but I do wish I had that, I think when I was younger too. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's a beautiful piece of advice. So Corey, you and I have been talking for a little while. We've covered literally your whole life. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's time for speed round. Are you ready for speed round? I hope so. I'm going to try my best. Yeah. I think you're ready. (laughs) Raman says no one's ready, but I always have faith that our our, our, our guests are usually ready. (laughs) What is one thing about you that no one expects? I think if I were to talk about the basketball piece, that I was a pretty ferocious point guard for many years of my life, and that little bulldog comes out, I think that's one of the things that people don't know when they obviously meet me. And then when I work with them or whatnot, they'll say, oh, I didn't know that about you. (laughs) Wait, where did all that fire come from out of this little five foot three? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Seemingly sweet. I know. Yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you should see actually there. I wish that I had the pictures still, but my parents would say I'd get this like, or my sisters, of course, would make fun of me. I'd get this mad face. I would like mad dark people. <laughs> if I'm guarding someone and I was like, I didn't even know I was doing that. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, yeah, yeah. You, you would have that face. <laughs> That's great. I have to make sure that I'm on your good side. I yeah. never want to play against you. <laughs> What's a book or movie or a television show? with characters that you relate to besides your own book, of course. (laughs) I think, well, recently I think, and I love her book. I know she's been out there for a little bit, but she's more up and coming now is Joanna Ho. And she has the eyes that kiss in the corner. That was sort of such a beautiful book and sort of made me look at things differently too, in the sense that again, being Asian American, appreciating that the things, the, the characteristics that we have that make us unique. And I think not only did it touch me, but I felt for my daughters as well. So 
That's great. We'll put that in the show notes. What is your favorite mom dish? What's something that mom makes that you just love? Mom. Mm. My mom or me mom? <laughs> well, see, that's the funny thing. When we talk to people that are parents, they're like, wait, is this what I make? I so I guess you can answer it both ways. What is the dish that you grew up with that mom used to make, or maybe she still makes that you absolutely love? And then what's something you make today for your daughters? Well, what's funny is I think I will admit Mike is a much better cook than me, which is kind of <laughs> funny because obviously he's a man and right. he's Chinese American man. But the thing is, is that Mike is an artist. And so I cook obviously, but he just, he's one of those guys where before I met him, I was like, wow, you really do things like this. He went to cooking classes. So mm. he actually is a pretty darn good cook, but nice. what I will say that we do, which is not cooking as much, but my kids love it. And we just did it because it got really cold. It was actually really beautiful up here. And then it turned really cold all of a sudden. And they love shabu shabu, which is oh, like yeah. hot pot. Yep, yep. Right. And it's not as much mm-hmm. cooking. It's more like preparation, but yeah. I have to tell you, my kids just love it. And I don't know if they love more the dipping the things in the hot pot itself (laughs) or actually eating it. But as you know, there's like meats and vegetables and we do silver noodles, the fish balls and the sauces, the Japanese sauces, and they just love it. So, and then going back, my mom made a version of that that she called like batayaki, I think, which is, it's more, everything is cooking in the pot. And it has sort of a darker sauce with the beefs in there. So it's more everything's cooking in the pot and then you eat it out. You extract the things you want in your own little rice bowl and you eat it versus for us, we just cook everything in the hot pot and then we take it out. But the things stay in her pot, whereas ours come out of the pot for the most part. So she cooks it in the pot. It's not individually like we are sticking stuff in. She does it all and then she brings it out in the pot and then we waste used to grab from. And it's funny because I was a really picky eater. So I didn't love a lot of things, but I definitely liked that just because it was warm and it felt homey. But my mom was actually a really great cook where she cooked just a little bit of Japanese food, but a lot of everything else. Like she has a great spaghetti. She picks right. cakes and my husband calls her the Japanese Martha Stewart, you know, like she- <laughs> <laughs> which is great. I wish I had more of that that I got from her, but she definitely, yeah. yeah. That's okay. You've got shabu shabu in your house. That's a whole experience. You've done it. You've done a good mom job there. <laughs> right. As long as the kids are, yeah, they and definitely through my husband, I think more than me, they love our oldest. Oh my gosh. She's such a New Yorker in that way. She loves food. It's like, I guess being up to here in the Bay area, I think we've talked about food so much that it's, can you smell this? Or do you taste the truffle? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm talking to my eight-year-old about this, but she gets it already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know it's, or we've got little foodies in our house too. And my seven-year-old is like, we have to go to a place with tablecloths. That's his. (gasps) Oh, he gets that already. And he gets that. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, you made that connection of when there's white tablecloths and when there's two different forks, there's a real setting, then it's going to be a really good meal. Wow. Yeah. Privilege. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Oh my God. Right? What is your least favorite food? What will you not eat? Okay. And I, being Asian too, I'm like, oh, but I think oysters. Oysters. I'm not a big oyster. It's a texture. 
slimy kind of thing for me. And I actually have a funny story about that because Mike and I, again, we're so opposite in the sense that he loves food in general and he loves all different kinds of food. So he eats raw oyster. He eats all different kinds. He knows the different kinds. When we were dating, we went to this really cute bistro in San Francisco. And I remember being at the bar and he's ordering appetizers. We're waiting for our table and he ordered some oysters and like a shooter kind of a thing that had some kind of cool cocktail-y concoction of not a sauce, but it has like a little bit of a, a splash of flavor that they put on it. And you're supposed to shoot them, right? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Like if I, inside I'm getting nervous. Oh no, he doesn't know that I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do this. Like I'm not going to be able to stomach right. it. I knew it was going to come back right. up. Like there's no way. But of course yeah. I played along great. This is going to be awesome. And so of course he does his and he's great. He's fine. He's excited. Oh my gosh. It's so delicious. And I do mine and it literally, I could not get it down. I oh, had to spit no. it back up. I mean, I was mortified. Right. <laughs> right. And right. I say it now it's had to be true love because he ate it. He ate mine after, after. I had... <laughs> try and put it back up. So I guess if that's not true love at that time, then <laughs> I think that's both true love for you and his love for oysters. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if that wow. was more of a, I just like them so much. I like her right, so much right. or I don't want to waste money. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Right. So funny. Okay. Last question. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Oh, modern minority. I think as much as I can, it's representing who I am, being truthful, authentic, and hopefully passing that on to my future generations and my kids so that they can also incorporate that into the world. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 